Excited Utterance, the Evidence and Proof Podcast, episode number 109, Ian Gallagher, Time to Abandon the Testimonial Oath. Welcome to Excited Utterance. I'm your host, Ed Chang from Vanderbilt Law School. Excited Utterance is your podcast for cutting-edge scholarship and developments in the world of evidence. We bring virtual workshops to you throughout the academic year. This week, our guest is Ian Gallagher. Ian is professor of law at Syracuse University College of Law, where he teaches legal writing. Ian's scholarship is on legal writing, as well as complex litigation, law and music, and now evidence. Our podcast today focuses on Ian's article, Swear Not at All, Time to Abandon the Testimonial Oath. It was published in the New England Law Review. In it, Ian challenges the legal system's long-standing practice of relying on oaths. I would argue that oaths are so common and so much a part of trial practice that we almost don't notice them, or at least we don't really question them. Ian, however, takes a look at oaths and oath-taking with fresh eyes. Where do oaths come from? Are they consistent with our modern secular system? Do they even make logical sense? And what other ill effects might they create? My conversation with Ian touches on all of these aspects of oaths and provides a much-needed critical perspective on the tradition. Regardless of where you ultimately come down on the issue of oaths, Ian is sure to make you think more deeply about them. Ian, delighted to have you on Excited Utterance. Welcome. Uh, Thank you, Ed. I'm delighted to be here. One of the clever things about your article is that you chose to focus on oaths and oath-taking, which I think sometimes is something that we don't ordinarily think about. In a sense, we almost assume it as part of testimony. What got you interested in the oath? Well, a couple of things. I'm a legal writing teacher. That's what I've done in the academy. And so words are important to me and how the law responds to words and thinks about words. And a lot of the work I've done over the years has had that as my focus. I think more directly, my wife and I, years ago, before I was a teacher, had some work done in our house. We really liked the contractor. He did a great job. And then a year or so later, he was accused of theft uh, in someone else's house. And he asked us to be character witnesses. And so I actually, rarely for a lawyer, I, I got to testify, take the oath, and then go through the experience from a witness's perspective. That, I think, awakened my interest in the process. And I had thought about it off and on over the years. And then I'm not quite sure what motivated this article to start, but it just seemed like the time that I wanted to work on that. You touch on many kinds of oaths that legal actors take in the paper, judges and juries and lawyers, but I think it's fair to say that your focus is on the testimonial oath, the oath that's taken by witnesses. I'm going to zero in on that. Historically, where does that testimonial oath come from? And how does the modern form differ from the historical counterparts? Oh, gosh. Well, historically, you go back to pagan times, back to seizing the hilt of a sword and swearing to be truthful. 
Helen Silving wrote a wonderful two-part article in the Yale Law Journal in the late 1950s. And that's the article really to go to for a, a full appreciation of the historical nature of the oath. For me, the difference between the oath that was taken back then and the oath that we take now is that, and it's something that children still remember today and that adults seem to have forgotten, but the oath is a two-part promise. The first part is to tell the truth, essentially. And then the second part is, but if I don't, and then there are all sorts of horrible things that will happen to you. Some oaths are graphic about it and go into detail. Some, some of the older oaths just say, essentially, you know, my soul will be damned for all eternity. Children, I think, still keep to that form of the oath. There's gesture, there's words, and bad things will happen to me if I lie in sort of children's promises. But the contemporary testimonial oath, which I suppose really gets codified to some extent by the Romans, who mistakenly believed that it was a Christian tradition, and so when the Romans adopted Christianity, they imported the oath into their judicial proceedings, and we really have continued the oath from there. The Romans dropped that second part, and they just kept the promise to tell the truth part. And it's kind of funny because you talk about in the article that the penalty or the curse portion of the oath is in some sense implicit because there's the penalty of perjury, I guess. On the other hand, perjury tends not to be prosecuted. And so you actually don't have that second part at all these days. That's right. And I think it's an interesting question as to why it's implicit as opposed to explicit. Why don't we have witnesses testify under penalty of perjury? That's a change that could be made simply. It's a change that you know, when we have unsworn declarations under 28 U.S.C. 1746, penalty of perjury is explicit in that. So I think it's a good question as to why we don't make that explicit in the oath. But yes, I think 2008 was the, the latest year I looked at for purposes of the article. And in that year, there were 18 prosecutions for perjury, not necessarily convictions, but just prosecutions for perjury in the entire federal judicial system. And that contrasted with over a thousand prosecutions for drunk driving, which is not normally thought of as a typical federal crime. So it's really a vanishingly small number of prosecutions for perjury that take place every year. And also weird is, you point this out as well, that courts say to juries that they don't need to believe the witness's testimony, which of course suggests that those would be cases in which perjury was occurring. Well, no, not necessarily. I mean, that's a standard jury instruction that's, that's given as a boilerplate in when I clerked for two years in the federal district court, and when we gave that jury instruction in every trial. Yeah, I mean, it, it's a standard. Any litigator will recognize the phrase. I mean, you can believe all, some, or none of what the witness said. So yes, there are many bizarre aspects to the oath, but that is one of the most troubling ones for me, that after you go through this whole ritual and do all of this, then the jury is told, yeah, it doesn't matter. If you want to believe him, believe him. If you don't, don't. It's a very strange ceremony that we go through. So in addition to the discussion about perjury, as you say, you make a number of substantive arguments against the testimonial oath. We're not going to necessarily have time to go over all of them, but I did want you to offer a couple of highlights. So what are two things that concern you most about this practice? Oh, to reduce it only to two. Well, I think the performative aspect of the oath is very troubling. We have witnesses stand up in open court and they perform a gesture, sometimes two, sometimes it's putting your hand on a religious book, 
usually the Bible, but not always, and raising your right hand. And that is very much allied to the pagan aspect of the oath, where you have a gesture and words. And then you have the jury getting all sorts of information about your religious affiliation uh, or your religious beliefs, which might be correct and might be mistaken. But nonetheless, if you affirm, if you choose to accept the affirmation as opposed to the religious oath, well, the jury then can think, well, this person isn't religious. Maybe that matters to them, or maybe it doesn't, but they shouldn't know what your religious affiliation or, or think they know what your religious affiliation is. And then the performative aspect, the, the hand, that might suggest to them how enthusiastic or unenthusiastic you are about taking the oath, telling the truth, or testifying in the first place. There's a great picture of Jeff Sessions about to testify to Congress, where it looks as if he's trying to touch the ceiling. His hand is raised so high. And he's really trying, I think, in that picture to send the message that he is enthusiastic about telling the truth to Congress. Whether that was the reality of what was going through then Attorney General Sessions' mind, I think is an open question. So there's a performative and gestural rhetoric to the oath that I think is unnecessary and troubling. And then for the second issue, I think it's the internal inconsistency of the nature of the promises you make. We make three promises to the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. But I challenge anyone to tell me what the truth actually is in a simple, succinct definition. The Oxford English Dictionary can't do it. Uh, philosophers have been trying for centuries to do it. The best we can say is that the truth is the absence of untruth, which is not particularly satisfying. But if we accept that, then what on earth is the whole truth? Because if the truth is the absence of untruth, it can't be divided into fractions of truthfulness and untruthfulness. So if you're testifying to tell the truth, then of course you're going to be telling the whole truth. But even if we accept that idea, then what does nothing but the truth mean? That really is, is an incoherent, meaningless third part of the tripod of oaths, promises that we take that I suspect is put there because of our love of things of three. You know, we, we love threes in rhetoric. And that's all well and good from a rhetorical perspective. But because of that addition, we have an oath that is internally inconsistent and that I don't think anyone really can say with any sort of certainty that they know what it means. Except, and this sounds strange, I realized, but to say that truth is much like pornography and that we know it when we see it, but that doesn't feel very satisfying either. So I think if I have to pick two of the, the many things that I think are wrong with the oath, those would be those things. I think those are two great selections. Correct me if I'm wrong, but what I see from those two criticisms, and actually many of the other ones you make, is that your primary complaint about the oath is that it's primarily ritual. It has its origins in ritual, and practically, it doesn't really accomplish anything. And then you have this really interesting quote uh, from that Silving article where she suggests that it degrades the legal system to engage in rituals that don't accomplish anything. I think that would be my principal concern about it. But yes, you want to push back on that a little. Yeah, so I want to push back on that by asking what you think about the conventional wisdom, which is that even if most people don't believe in oaths in the traditional religious way, even if they don't believe in the sanctions that are behind the perjury prosecution, the ritual, like many of our legal rituals, imbues the proceeding with solemnity and that that solemnity is something that we want to get more accurate testimony. 
Well, I'm going to push back on your pushback uh, <laughs> a little bit to say that I'm not sure that that is the conventional wisdom because I'm not sure there is any conventional wisdom on this. Certainly, the scholarship that's been performed on the oath is overwhelmingly disparaging of it. Really, anyone who has spent much time looking at the oath, how it's performed, what it says, and its consequences don't have much good to say about the oath. I think the other interesting point you make is that it imbues some sense of solemnity, which I think many people would say, and I think is part of the troubling aspect of it, because solemnity carries with it overtones of religion. That's the whole notion of the word. That's where the word comes from. It's a religious concept. And do we want our courts to be quasi-religious in function and in the way they perform, or do we want them to be the secular bodies that we proclaim them to be? I think there's no way of getting out of some form of affirmation that one is binding oneself to tell the truth or to testify truthfully, which I think is the more appropriate way to frame the promise. But I think that can be done in better ways that are more compelling and that are less susceptible to providing improper ideas about the witness in the jury. My proposal is that we abolish the oath as it currently happens in court. And it says substitute an out-of-court signature on a document that carries very much the same concept as the 1746 language, a promise to testify truthfully under penalty of perjury. It provides the ritualistic aspect of an oath in the sense that you actually sign something, so you're performing a gesture. But it's a gesture that is more contemporary and is more understood as something that one does when one makes a, a binding promise. Now, I think you know, the counter-argument to that is that every tax fraud that was ever perpetrated was conducted under somebody's signature. So, of course, people are willing to lie under signature as well as in court. But you do that, you have them sign, you then take that, enter it into evidence, which the witness knows is going to happen. And then you have the judge, when the witness sits down, rather than giving the oath, just reminding the witness that they've promised to testify under penalty of perjury, that they'll testify truthfully. So you accomplish many of the goals of what the common conventional wisdom would think of for the oath, but you've done them in a better way. At least that's what I would contend. I found that solution somewhat curious. I understand what you're trying to accomplish here. You're trying to remove some of the ritualistic religious elements of it and getting down to a much more secular signature saying that you're going to be subjecting yourself to the penalty of perjury. But in light of our earlier discussion about perjury and how it's never prosecuted, I was a little curious why you didn't just advocate for a simple abolition, that we assume that the jury has to make a credibility decision anyway. In fact, that jury instruction, and I think in many ways, the assumptions of cross-examination and almost everything that goes on at trial assumes that the witness will have motives at certain points to lie or misstate things. Why don't we just open it up and forget about this particular aspect of trial practice? Well, because as a true legal academic, I try to take the middle way. <laughs> Certainly, Silving advocates the just simple abolition and letting the process play out as it will. Why do I say penalty of perjury when perjury doesn't seem to be a meaningful sanction? Well, because it's what we have. And because, honestly, I don't think this country is ready for a straight abolition. I think there are countries where that has happened. I think Japan doesn't have any form of oath for testament. I think in Germany, the witness 
essentially performs an oath after testifying. So you testify without the oath, and then afterwards you say, the evidence I gave was truthful. And so if you don't do that, if you've lied under oath and you feel you don't want to be bound under penalty of perjury, you can just say, no, I decline to take the oath. I don't think this country would be willing to accept either of those alternatives. I think you know what you call conventional wisdom or what, what I would call unthinking tradition is so deeply ingrained at this point that it would be very hard for us to move to a practice where you just had nothing at all. So for me, the middle ground is the less controversial and the more likely to be accepted, frankly. And because I want the oath to change radically, I'm willing to accept some inconsistencies in my proposed solution. Final question for you. So what's next for this project? Are there any future directions that you'd like to take the work or that you'd like to see others do in this area? You ask a big question and we probably don't have that much time for the answer. So from my perspective, there is no future. I retire at the end of this academic year and I have some projects that I have started before the pandemic hit and some other issues that have happened in my life that have really taken me away from working on those. And I'm looking forward to getting back to those in retirement, but they don't involve the oath. What I would love to see others take up is some empirical work. I think that we don't have data to support contentions either in favor of or against the oath. And I think we really need something much like the Irish Commission that I cite several times in the article, where they took a much more detailed look at the oath and its value. But I would like to take it even further and actually have some research done into what juries experience when someone takes the oath as opposed to when they don't, what witnesses experience. And I think all of that could be done fairly easily. And I think universities are well set to uh, conduct that sort of work. Law schools in conjunction with psychology departments, I think, could do wonderful things in this regard. Publish those results, get those results to the Federal Judicial Center and to the Rules Advisory Committee and, and to anyone else really who is interested in this sort of thing, and then have a genuine discussion about the value of the oath with data in hand that allows us to support the contentions and the conclusions that we're reaching, rather than, I hope, accurate, but nonetheless, non-empirical conclusions that I reach in the article. So I think empiricism is what really should come next. Well, Ian, thanks for a great discussion about the oath and for asking some hard questions about an aspect of the evidentiary system that sometimes we just assume uncritically. Great having you on the show. Thank you, Ed. It's been a pleasure. As I've noted many times on this podcast, evidence law is full of time-honored traditions and practices that are often simply assumed to be true or legitimate. And I'm always grateful for scholarly efforts that probe whether those assumptions are true. The oath is so ingrained as to be almost unremarkable. To testify, you have to promise to tell the truth, hence the oath. But as Ian suggests, there's more to it than meets the eye. Because of its religious and ritualistic origins, the oath raises some troubling complications. It unnecessarily identifies the witness's religious affiliation. It involves weird language that doesn't quite make sense. And the teeth of the entire enterprise, the fact that the witness is testifying under penalty of perjury, 
Well, that doesn't even get mentioned in the oath ritual. And so you have Ian's proposal, which is to effectively modernize the oath. Ask the witness to sign a statement agreeing to testify on pain of perjury, and then do away with the ritual and the religious objects. But as I asked in the podcast episode, what if the ritual is the key to the whole thing? Are we willing to trade it off simply because of its origins? Ultimately, Ian's charge to the evidence community as he moves into retirement is our challenge for the future. We all agree that we want to incentivize and to promote truthful testimony in court. The question is, what mechanism best accomplishes that? Is it a signed statement, kind of like on a tax form? Or is it actually the ritual of the oath in court? Or is it something else? Until we do the empirical studies, we don't really know. So it's my hope that some enterprising scholar will take up this torch from Ian. Support for Excited Utterance is generously provided by Vanderbilt Law School's Brandstetter Litigation and Dispute Resolution Program, as well as the University of Arkansas School of Law. The associate producer is Alex Nunn, and the production editor is Grace DiPietro. Additional production assistance is provided by Francesca Rutherford, and music is provided by the Vanderbilt University Blair School of Music's Children's Cello Choir under the direction of Kirsten Castle Greer. I'm your host, Ed Chang, and I hope you'll join us again next time when we take on another new work in the world of evidence and proof. Thank you.